Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. We are binging in isolation this spring on the HBO version of Elena Ferrante. She's the novelist of Naples, the modern match of Dickens in London, Victor Hugo and Proust in Paris, except that Ferrante is a woman today in the very male dominion of Italy, south of Rome, and the modern female gaze makes all the difference. The pounding pulse inside this Neapolitan quartet of novels is the searing, scarring, brilliant friendship of two women inside a modern volcano of squalor and fear, rock fights, and then round-the-clock beatings, a long habit of violence at war with beauty, love, and ambition. Among the special effects of Ferrante fever is that it takes readers one by one back to fourth-grade crushes wherever you went to school, girls, boys, all the stages of your life, and mine. Then comes the compulsion to talk about Ferranti's people. At the Reader's Cafe, I Am Books, in Boston's North End, on any given Saturday, the conversation can sound like this. You really feel like you know these people. It's an epic. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Took me two weeks. It was a marathon instead of watching, you know, like the Game of Thrones marathon. I just, I was just, I couldn't stop. And again, I'm Italian-American as well, so I can see a little bit. And I grew up in New York. It's like opium from your eyes, like a heroin. <laughs> like you're just addicted and you just can't stop. It's readable in Italian and in English. Yeah, it really is. It has a different meaning for me in the sense that I, I am Italian-American. But I do like the the interplay of the relationship between Lila and, and Lenu. It, it's interesting because I do think that we explore ourselves by our relationships with others and through our friends. It's very difficult. I mean, who of us has still have childhood friends if you don't have anything in common anymore with them? You studied, she didn't. Uh, you get married, you got a child, and uh, she didn't. It's difficult. Right, but to what extent do we exist if someone else isn't observing us or recognizing it? Like, do they even exist without one another? Our own Mary McGrath recorded those voices, and there's more to come. Megan O'Grady is leading us toward the Elena Ferranti frontier this hour. She's book editor at Vogue magazine, and she drew the virtually invisible author into a fascinating email conversation on where the novels come from. Megan, welcome. You're the only one in this hour, the only one I know, who has felt Elena Ferrante in a sort of conversation. What's to share off the top? Well, um, I think, uh, well, first of all, to, to correspond with someone like Elena Ferrante is sort of like talking to the oracle, it felt like, uh, just to see her name appear in my email box. Um, <laughs> And, you know, there's a, another funny thing about interviewing someone like Ferrante, aside from her uh, anonymity, uh, is that the books have a way of answering their own questions. Um, of th- there are so many things, um, you know, from her, her attitude toward her feminism uh, through 
her reasons for choosing to be anonymous that are, are actually kind of embedded and explained in the books themselves. Toward her writing, but what were you thinking of, for example, that you learned? Well, I mean, there are so many things that, you know, honestly, I could have published her the email back and forth in, in uh, its entirety uh, because she's so... Uh, you know, so such a beautiful writer and, and so wonderful at articulating the things uh, that we love her for. And, um, you know, I've been so struck by the appeal of these books to so many people, men and women across different uh, ages and experiences. And, you know, some of it is, of course, um, you know, the the prose itself, which is absolutely devoid of, of pretension and this craft. Um, but the thing that I think that we all really are responding to here is something that she told me in the interview, which is that writing for her is a battle against lying. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you feel that hard-won truth as a reader. Um, these are books that bring up strong feelings, um, especially for women who are ambitious or creative. They speak to a range of familiar experiences, such as the jealousy of a friend who has a different kind of intelligence or a different kind of beauty, for example, mm -hmm. or the guilt of the smart girl who leaves her family and her provincial origins behind. Um, and then there's just this very deep satisfaction that comes with following uh, these two girls and then women, uh, Lenu and Lila, throughout their lives. Uh, the friendship is given a deep seriousness that we, we don't always see in literature, um, the friendship between women being given that level mm. of seriousness. And we see how this original wound, the fact that Lila is denied an education, uh, and how that kind of fatefully reverberates. Speaking of the just the granular beauty of the of the prose and the not lying and the female gaze, I mean, here's a tiny sample. They meet in first grade. As as Lenu writes, Lila appeared in my life in first grade and immediately impressed me because she was very bad. Her quickness of mind was like a hiss, a dart, a lethal bite. She was disheveled, dirty. On her knees and elbows, she always had scabs from cuts and scrapes that never had time to heal. Her large, bright eyes had a gaze that appeared not very childlike and perhaps not even human. Every one of her movements said that to harm her would be pointless because whatever happened, she would find a way of doing worse to you. Well, one thing, uh, I mean, that's a beautiful description of, of uh, Leela and this kind of quicksilver uh, slightly uh, terrifying intelligence that she has. Uh, one thing that um, uh, that um, Ferrante told me was, or wrote to me, was um, that when she was 12 and she was in school, she had a very good friend, um, her deskmate. And uh, her deskmate, uh, her friend decided um, or suggested that they write a novel together, and together they made mm. up a story. <laughs> um, they each decided that they would write a chapter and the friend would, would start. Um, and so then Elena read the chapter. She did not like it. And so she wrote the entire novel herself uh, from beginning to end and then told her friend, lied and told her friend, um, you know, that she had, she had loved the chapter but just didn't feel like she had the courage to go on. Um, and that that really was kind of an origin for her as, as a writer and perhaps also the origin of this, of this book. In the novel, too, I mean, they've read Little Women by Louisa May Alcott and they think they might just strike it rich. Yes, yes. Yes, it's true. Can I ask, um, what shelf do you put these books on? I mean, women's literature, all-time classics, modern, specifically um, 21st century 
breakthroughs or where do they go? Or do they go in history or anthropology or psychology? Uh, well, it, it's true there is almost an ethnographic quality to the way she describes uh, post-war Naples. And um, again, that's another part of the appeal of the books is this, this sort of, um, you know, the way in which we see this kind of social and political upheavals of Italy throughout the 60s, mm. 70s and 80s. Um, um, for me, what, you know, where we classify the books, you know, the, these aren't this isn't the kind of question that really preoccupies me or interests me, you know, as a critic. But uh, for me, of course, they are classics. They are, uh, you know, it's it's sort of unusual. I, I, I can't really explain why she hasn't won more prizes. She didn't win the Booker Prize this week. That was That's a right. shock to me. But connect her with others. People say Jane Austen. I came to her through Karl Ove Knausgaard. And I sort of, in, in recording from Knausgaard, people said, nah, he's not the Norwegian guy. Come on. This woman from the south of Italy is it. And she is it. But I hear, I feel Dickens in her. Obviously Proust from a, from a straight woman's perspective. But where else would you go in locating antecedents? Well, I mean, you know, she would um, – I know that, you know, her influence is very clearly uh, Elsa Morante and you can see kind of her name is sort of taken from that as well, Elena Ferrante, Elsa Morante. A friend I have yet to meet, people – she turns up in the novel as sort of the mother of us all. But what does that mean? Um, well, uh, what does that mean in terms of – Who else? Elsa, <laughs> Elsa Morante. Morante. I mean, she's – yeah, she's a great uh, Italian Italian author and, and feminist and um, – I, you know, I think it was the book House of Liars that was uh, the the book that Ferrante read at sixteen that sort of um, made her sort of multiplied her ambition. I guess I'd put it that way. Um, before that, I think she'd read Confessions of an Italian uh, by Ippolito Nievo. Um, she, you know, she told me that she grew up in a in a household uh, with very few books, um, and that she grew up in Naples, and uh, that she just was constantly taking books out of the library. She hated when a novel ended, and she would just read it and reread it and reread it, and that that was her key to her development as a, as a reader. And she read indiscriminately, high and lowbrow, mm. and that's something that's interesting. When you read her books now, there's this kind of seamless quality that, to the prose and this this uh, strong uh, will to kind of not have any pretension. Uh, that said, there are, there are moments of kind of supreme strangeness in the book, mm. you know, that kind of puncture this realism. Um, there's a moment when a copper pot explodes in the in the first book, uh, and then I think it's in the second um, when a portrait of Leela bursts into flames, spontaneously combusts. Um, I, I hope uh, whoever films the miniseries that they will <laughs> somehow include it. Maxi series. Speak of two specific Ferrante effects. There's one. I'm back in the fourth grade. All these names came back to me. Ann Barker, Ann Cheney, Eddie Deleuze, <laughs> Ronnie Crow, Wayne Nudd, I mean, uh, Wayne Ricker, Frank Nudd, et cetera. But we're back in the schoolroom and we realized we felt particular strong things about everybody in that room. But the, the, there's another effect, uh, and maybe it's the not lying. She does sort of assure you there will be no lies in this book. We're telling everything. Candor, fearlessness, it somehow encourages the reader, puts you in a different place. This is not a yarn. What, how, how do you describe the effect? Um, you know, I think that's true. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking back to your comparison to Knausgaard, who also does childhood very well. And it, it's hard not to compare the two because they are sort of, um, you know, multi-volume uh, 
you know, narratives of the self and coming into being as a as a writer and a and a person. Um, and one is is very very masculine in a certain way, and one is very feminine. I mean, one is, you know, my struggle, the six volume, you know, as with, if we cared, his name. Carlo. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, 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 he assumes that he owns the territory. She assumes that she has to do something marvelously interesting in the territory, and maybe then she'll have a claim on us. But it's entirely different. She wins for me. She's, her, she's more crafted, and she's also anonymous, and that, that says a lot right there. Stand by, Megan O'Grady. Coming up, between the lines with Elena Ferranti, there seems to be one woman's history of 40 years of feminism. This is Open Source. We read the Neapolitan novels of Elena Ferrante in translation from her Italian. It is Anne Goldstein, an editor of The New Yorker magazine, who gets high marks everywhere for catching the headlong pace of the original, also for decoding words that have no English equivalent. Here is the translator who's caught Ferrante's voice without ever meeting her. It's me trying to capture Ferrante and not go too far out of English, but also to capture that quality of rushing, of sort of mounting intensity, which I think sort of requires something of a run-on sentence. And Goldstein, take one word that everybody focuses on, this smudginatura. It may be the key to the whole book, this permeability of personalities, but literally mm-hmm. the bleeding of borders. Take it apart. It's a word from printing. I'm actually not sure if it's bleeding margins or cutting off the margins. It's not a normal Italian word used in that sense. But she uses it to describe this experience of Leela's, of people's margins dissolving. The first way that I translated it was, of course, very literal. And I said trimming the edges. Well, obviously, it's not trimming the edges. It's something more dissolving than I said. Losing the edges, dissolving the margins. I think dissolving boundaries is what I came up with in the end. And here are the book club women in the North End getting their heads around smarginatura. The very beginning of the first book, I don't remember what the word was. I think it's like blurring of the margins, where she feels like she's disappearing or she wants to disappear. or She's just like being merged in with her husband. It's a printing term. Like smudging. Isn't the Italian word like smarginatura? It's called smarginatura. I think it's like she's lost her individuality. She has no control over her life. Um, So that smarginatura is her describing how she's melting into her husband, into her surroundings. She does not have the ability to take control and do what she wants to do. She was just almost like a mental illness, like just losing herself and no boundaries, like just kind of flowing into everything and everything flowing into her as well. It's a very complicated um, idea. So the beginning of the first book was that she disappeared and that it seems to be her deeper wish. Then we discover that through her, her entire life, she has this experience of this uh, uh, smarginatura. Mm-hmm. That means it loses her margins, the boundaries within herself and the rest of the world, the world or herself and someone else. Mm-hmm. And then again, uh, she never 
go out of the Rione, of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to go because that's where her margins are, maybe, boundaries are. But also in the Rione, she is fighting to keep her boundaries. Uh, Yeah, it's a powerful uh, word. Smarginature, which I don't know how to... She doesn't really have any... Any translation. Almost like getting rubbed out. Being erased. Yeah. Those are the Saturday ladies at the I Am Books Cafe in the north end of Austin. Dana Tortorici joins us from Brooklyn. She's co-editor of N Plus One. Can I say the hipper than hip culture mag? (laughs) Dana, welcome. So many (laughs) themes. Welcome and thank you. So many themes of everything in that one word, smarginatura, you know, emotions, personalities, territories. Can you leave Naples and come back? Can you stay? Um, where do you begin with, with, with Elena Ferrante, your favorite Ferrante, your take-home Ferrante? My favorite Ferrante, you mean passage or book? Yeah, as you like, if you'd read your uh, well, bit. I will read to you. So I, I have a little piece from near the end of book one. Um, and this is for context. Um, Lenu has written an essay, or I think it might be a newspaper article, um, and Leela has, you know, since what Megan called the original wound when she's denied an education at fourth grade because her father says she can't study anymore, she must work in the shoe shop, has pretended that she's not interested in reading and writing, and yet you can tell she's naturally gifted in these ways. So um, after being disinterested in these things supposedly for so long, she offers to basically edit um, this thing that Lenu has written. Hmm. And so this is an interaction between them. And Lenu is very terrified because she's intimidated by Leela, imagines that all of her gifts as a writer and as a person actually just come from Leela. They belong to Leela. So um, Leela looks up at her and says, can I erase? Yes. She erased quite a few words in an entire sentence. Can I move something? Yes. She circled a sentence and moved it with a wavy line to the top of the page. When she gave me back the notebook, she said, You're very clever. Of course they always give you ten. I felt that there was no irony. It was a real compliment. Then she added with sudden harshness, I don't want to read anything else that you write. Why? She thought about it. Because it hurts me. And then she struck her forehead with her hand and burst out laughing. Mm. It reminds me, if I may say, of that wonderful scene early on when she she's a hellion in class. She sends these kind of ink-soaked spitballs all around the room. She she injures her teacher, and the teacher she's the original writing terrorist with these ink paintballs, basically. Yeah, and the teacher says, despite everything, she's the best of the lot of you. Yes, and. And she then asks her to write a word, the first grade, and she she can spell it on the on the blackboard. And she said, Chiruro, where did you learn that? Who taught you that? And she hesitates a bit, this dark-spirited girl in a dark dress, and finally she says, me. Mm-hmm. I taught me that. An early moment of triumph. Dana, would you, you've written extensively in N Plus One about Ferrante, and these novels as a sort of autobiography of feminism, a workable 
feminism at the end of a long search. How, describe that process that we're led through in the book. Yeah, so what's interesting about these books is that they're unequivocally feminist books. Um, meaning? And meaning that they are books told from the perspective of strong women in the interests of women who are strong or wish to be strong, um, and in that way advance the idea, which should not be radical but is, that women are autonomous beings who deserve to have their stories told and deserve to be protagonists. And I think that Ferrante's idea of who the hero of history is or who an important creature is as a person who is a protagonist. She mentions in one interview, I don't remember if it was in Megan's, when someone asked her if she was a feminist and what feminist literature was important to her, among the names that might be more familiar to American audiences, including Shulamis Firestone um, and Donna Haraway, she mentioned an Italian feminist named Adriana Cavarero, who wrote a brilliant book about the importance of narrative in the definition of selfhood um, and how a person, what makes a person a unique existent in reality is their desire to express their own story. Um, so I think for her, that's what feminism is, is the desire to express your own story and your ability to express your own story. Megan O'Grady, does that no, work I would... for you? I would absolutely agree. I mean, you know, I, I did ask Ferrante about how sort of she sees her work in relation to her feminism. Um, because in, you know, by the last book, um, Lenu has, of course, become a well-known feminist voice in Italy. But what Ferrante does so brilliantly is kind of, you know, very ironically contrast the principles of equality she's espousing and the reality of her life at that moment in which she feels quite powerless. Um, and so when I, when I uh, you know, kind of had this exchange with Ferrante about feminism, you know, she said, of course, you know, ideology is necessary when waging cultural and political battles, but, um, but it's limited. It's a kind of veil was the term she used uh, when we're talking about literature and about telling a story truthfully. Um, but that, you know, to go to Dana's point, uh, you know, the hardest thing, what we see in the book is that the hardest thing is to see oneself, to name oneself, to imagine oneself clearly. Uh, even free from the boundaries um, that point the way to liberation. There's a moment in the third book, highly politicized time in the 70s, I suppose, maybe Milan, but uh, a, a, a writer named Carla Lonzi is held up as the model, and especially an essay she wrote called We Spit on Hegel. Uh, and Lenu is thrilled. Spit on Hegel, spit on the culture of men, spit on Marx, on Engels, on Lenin, on historical materialism, and on Freud, and on psychoanalysis, and penis envy, and on marriage, on family, blah, blah, blah. But find your own space. Um, woman is the unpredictable subject. Free oneself from subjection here, now, in this presence. And Lenu reflects to herself, she says, it, um, no one knew better than I did what it meant to make your own head masculine so that it would be accepted by the culture of men. That That is the long struggle, isn't it, Dana? Yes, I think so. I love that passage so much because, and I think that whole third book is wonderful in this way, um, in that you really start to recognize the world historical political events of that era intersecting, which are, were, you know, true in the sense of um, 
existing in non-fictional reality intersecting with this narrative. Um, and I, I love that particular moment so much because um, it's so truthful to the experience of, um, well, you know, one thing that I think is very interesting about feminist philosophy and feminist politics is that, you know, no one is born a feminist. Mm. The history of feminism is recapitulated with every individual. Um, because, of course, you know, even if your mother is a feminist, you reject your mother, and so you reject everything. Um, and you need to really come to it on your own. And Lanou, like young women even today, you know, susses out the fact that mm. to be taken seriously, to advance, especially in the... Um, in the sort of upward mobility narrative that's also operative here in order to finish school, to go to college, to leave the neighborhood, she needs to think, she needs to get tens, she needs to get straight A's, Mm -hmm. which does not include thinking outside the box or thinking in a way that is against the male dominant regime. And so when she, as an adult who has already won middle-class respectability. She's reading this passage where I think she's like breastfeeding on a bench um, and is discovering it for the first time. She has this breakthrough like, oh my God, I didn't realize that I had been doing this to myself the whole time. Mm. Um, And it's this, you know, I think all of the books are about female experience and, but there's only a small portion of them that are about feminism as, you know, capital F feminism um but i wonder can i ask you dana where where does that clearing of the space which takes such a lot of struggle where does it deliver these women they knew and leela very different obviously leela fights for it literally in battle political battle personal battle husband battle uh back in naples but where does it take leno leno either you know both of them well i I think that for both, what what is so striking about that particular Lonzi um, argument is this is sort of the high point of what's called difference feminism, which is a sort of feminism that emphasizes the difference between men and women as not is as very important, and it's not that the rights of men need to be extended to women, but that women are constitutionally different and that the feminine, the female, needs to be honored. And so I think that with embracing this idea of the the female and the feminine, where it actually kind of leads them is into um, an a formulation of motherhood that is unconventional and yet still functional and happier than either of them would have had if they had been married to the hus- like married to their first husbands abused and so forth they end up kind of rearing their children together in a kind of like quasi feminist collective slash old school um, living next door to your family kind of way. They're very involved in collaboratively raising their children. Um, and you could say this is a very feminist model, and yet it, she doesn't put too fine a point on it. So I think it leads them to a respect for their mothers in a way that mm. they didn't have, because to them, being their mother meant being trapped in the neighborhood, meant being abused, meant being not the protagonist, and both of them wanted to be the protagonist. And so learning that you could... Mm love the figure of the mother, be the strong mother, and yet still be the protagonist is a very radical thing. 
being the protagonist, Megan O'Grady, you know, resolving all that anger with mother. What 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 is the example here for 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 women readers? Um, well, I you know, I, I think feminism tends to be kind of a messier thing when it's applied uh, to real life, and I've been kind of curious to see how women have responded so differently to the kind of models of of women, how they've responded to the mother with her limp. Um, mm. which haunts Elena, um, and how this idea of women needing to be kind of a little more perfect that Dana sort of alluded to in order to in order to succeed, in order to be relatable. And that's something that's still, and even in our culture, is true, I think. Um, you know, I have a good friend of mine, um, a Hollywood producer who would definitely call herself a feminist, who has daughters, and who said to me after reading the third novel, like, but didn't you lose sympathy for Elena? Uh, when she left her husband, and isn't she making a big mistake? And to me, um, you know, that was that was somewhat horrifying to hear. Elena, for me, was never more sympathetic because the stakes are so high. And Ferrante, what she's doing there is linking kind of creative agency with desire and having the courage to act on it. Um, and that's something that I think mm. uh, is is still very difficult uh, for for many women. I have to say, I wondered if Lenu was losing it. In the third volume and the fourth, something's coming apart there. But then, meantime, her writing is becoming very successful. She's feeling successful. Well, I mean, you know, as Dana alluded to, you know, in the end, in the in the fourth book, uh, part of the big pleasure of reading that book is is that uh, you know, Leela and Lenu are are together again and uh, and very interdependent. Uh, you know, uh, Lenu's success as an author is, is uh, becomes dependent on on Leela in many in many ways, uh, childcare and also kind of helping her kind of mm-hmm. feed her stories of the of the neighborhood and how it works. Um, I think they're acting out an amazing sort of definition of what what critics have always meant by the female gaze. The the tolerance, the long-term nature of that friendship, the support despite everything. Lenu looks at Leela and says, I know she would wound me desperately uh, with words and under the right circumstances, the wrong ones, she would kill coldly. Dana, I mean... Uh, it, it, but the, but the fact that they they stick together, they remain in touch almost to the end. The, there's a tolerance, there's a groundedness in that friendship. I can't imagine it between men. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, I I this I wonder if I'm allowed to say this, but um, anything goes. The, oh, anything goes. Okay. Well, in the there was a wonderful interview in the Paris Review um, with the publishers of um, the Ferrante novel, Sandro and Sandra Ferry, and their daughter, um, and Ferrante. And I was talking to the editor of the Paris Review, Lauren Stein, who mentioned that there was, you know, a part that was cut from the interview was about how um, Ferrante was very interested in the relationship between uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge. Um, And so I think she's actually very interested in the kind of productive animosity or not quite animosity but the the creative tensions between uh great thinkers and i think she thought there are women for whom this is true and yet the dominant narrative is two men hustling it out so i think it i think it exists dana hold it there taking a break coming up the ferrante resonances around the 
very wide world of women writers and readers. This is open source. Elena Ferrante is book group bait for all sorts of questions. Who is she, for starters? And did she write these books from 50 years of her own scrapbooks? It's not just the North End, either, that talks Ferrante. In Central Square, Cambridge, it sounds like this. I felt like I was reading Desperate Housewives of Naples. Okay. Um, A little bit about the treatment of women and whether this is feminist or whether this is 50s or whether this is Italian or whether it is socioeconomic because these girls got married with no expectation of their husbands actually treating them well. Mm. None at all. Their mother-in-law, their mothers, their fathers. And I'm not sure that's feminism or it's this very limited village with kind of no way to get out of patterns that are almost ancient. A lot of people say this is about women. This is a moving exposition of the way women are friends. In a and sexist male patriarchy. That's what I think. In a sexist male patriarchy. To, to me, it strikes me that men might say that this is about women friends. But if this is what men think that women's friendships are like, we have a long way to go. On Twitter this week, we asked who else wanted to talk Ferrante. Best answer was the young Indian novelist Nilanjana Roy, a close Ferrante reader, who came in on Skype from New Delhi. Right from the first paragraph, you know that you want to follow that voice anyway. You know, you'll follow it into a country and a city that you don't really know that much about. But I think two things. One is the really interesting connection with Jane Austen and her. And I think that's because they're both women who separated by centuries, right, with a complete lack of embarrassment, with absolute um, confidence, not just about the lives of women, but about female friendships. You know, that's something that people say often about Ferrante. But getting to the question of why she her appeal cuts across the globe, I think it's extraordinary because when I was sitting here, I had the same sense of affinity that I would when she was describing the poverty in Naples and particularly the sense of danger. You know, there's a fantastic paragraph where she says the words that we feared, you know, and she has an entire list of things from tuberculosis to bombs. And you recognize that wherever you are in the world, if you've been in a part of the world that's even been remotely unsettled, you say, yes, that's familiar. That could be coming out of the chorals of Bombay or the slums of Delhi, or it could be coming out of, you know, any part of the world that's gone through the least bit of shake-up. And at the same time, it's Italy. In my case, Italy was a place that I associated with museums and fine art and Florence, and here was this completely different side to it. I want you to just sort of carry on on that female difference. It's an incredibly different eye. I think it's because she's a great writer on the subject of power and where it comes from and who has it. Mm. You know, whether it's in a neighborhood, whether it's between women arguing over who owns what part of the street, or whether it's in a marriage. If you think of the people whom you're closest to and whom you honestly, you know, love with all your heart, aren't those also the most, not fraught, but they are the most furrowed relationships. There's always the fear that the person you love most might leave you behind or might not be thinking in exactly the same way. Between women, there's both that solidarity and bonding and there's the competitiveness. You know, there's the section where she says about Leela, is she always going to learn things faster and better than me? She captures an essential truth about relationships. The men hold the territory. But they hold that at some level their power can be obliterated by a woman 
who uses her own power in a different way, you know, not just sexually, but also to challenge them intellectually. And I think that's, again, what she does. She puts women's minds back at the center of a book. It's a very bodily book. It's a very, I mean, all the books, they are, they are fleshly and they're bodily, but they're also so much, they insist that a woman's intellectual view of the world and the way she experiences the world intellectually is important. That was Nilanjana Roy in New Delhi. Consult our webpage, radioopensource.org, for the woman herself and her work. Megan O'Grady writes for Vogue magazine, Dana Tortorici for N Plus One, both authorities on Elena Ferranti. I heard there a wonderful definition of sort of the feminist objective, this this place that puts the woman's mind at the center of the story and the center of the conversation. Uh, yeah, well, that's, Megan. that's funny. I, I, I tend to think of, um, I would have before that really thought of uh, Jane Austen and Elena Ferrante almost as, as, as opposites uh, in a certain way. And, Explain. In that we think of Jane Austen very much as, um, you know, operating with constructs like the marriage plot and, and, and that, uh, you know, a woman's fate sort of ends with... Um, you know who she who she marries, um, and this partnership, um, and and again like the, you know the social sort of social comedies, um, but I'm uh, I think I'm convinced that they do have something in common. Uh, I know that Ferrante has actually written about um, uh, sense and sensibility, um, and I, you know, we forget that uh, that Jane Austen herself was uh, published uh, pseudonymously, I believe. Uh, in her lifetime, and and only later was and cared uh, about being anonymous too. Yeah. Dana, do you want to play with those connections? Oh, sure. I mean, I I love the idea about of of the objective of feminism being putting women's minds at the center. One thing that I like so much about these books is that they don't feel the need to make a choice between women's intellectual life and women's sexual life, um, that both of these things are given equal weight, because I think that there is an impulse, a self-correcting impulse to remove women's sexuality from anything that's intellectually uh, serious or ambitious, and it's part of what makes these novels feel so rich and so complete Mm. that these facets of life, which even just in the mind-body duality are considered to be separate for men as well, but for women especially, because to be taken seriously, you must sort of erase your body, um, Hmm. is like what is, it's what gives them their depth. Lenu in the novel is working it all out, reading, writing, studying, doubting, etc. Leela, genius that she is, gets to the answer without doing any of the homework, and she knows from the beginning exactly what her objective is. Could you describe her as an intellectual? What What is the substance of her outlook? Megan. Well, um, you know, I, I think Leela, it's, it's interesting. These books are so much um, a study, you know, between this long friendship. There's so many opportunities for reversal 
Um, in the end, to me, they're they're very much the story of of uh, one friend uh, and her struggle to kind of make her mark, Lenu, and then uh, and one friend's sort of disappearance over time. What happens to a woman if you uh, you know deny her an education? If she's uh, you know her power is subverted and she tries other ways to marry well? Can or I other- argue that a little bit? Sure. She also knows from word one that her objective in life is to fight the Solaras, the Camorra. Yes. It defines all of her relationships, even though she halfway marries into their tribe. But it's it's a tong war, absolutely without restraint. And there's a perfect clarity about it, and about her mind. She's never in doubt. Doesn't that say something about what she believes? And even in terms of clearing a space, in Naples, she's drawing a line, and she's got the shoemaker's knife under one of the Solara brothers' chin, and there's not the question in anybody's mind, including his, that she will kill him to, to make her point. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, the, is the question like who is who is fighting harder? I mean, you know, they're they're um, they're so their their kind of parallel journeys are so interesting because, uh, you know, one does become, you know, sort of escapes and becomes the intellectual. But but even Lenu comes back. Um, and 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 you know finally ultimately is the one who tells their story. But she could not have done it without without Leela and Leela experiencing these things. How does she experience? How does Leela, Dana? How does Leela experience the patriarchy and the menace, the the bullying, the the emptiness of that Solara rule? Well, that's the beauty of it. We don't actually know. I think that something that tends to get forgotten is that the entire story is being told by Lanu, and there's only moments where the frame narrative is broken, and you remember that all of the story that's being told is being written by Lanu as a gesture of retaliation against her friend's desire to erase herself. And so we can, you know, as much as, you know, within the presented diegesis, you can say, oh, she reacts to it this way. But um, actually, everything that we learn about Lila is being told to us by Lanu. And the way that they complement each other and are different from one another is it's very tidy. And it's it, you, re- you kind of learn, especially near the end of uh, the series, when Lanu is talking about how she's terrified that Leela is working on a book, that she's been going to the library and researching the history of Naples, and Mm. she's imagining how Leela is going to write this book that's going to upstage her. Um, And she has a breakthrough when she realizes, oh, that book, Leela's not writing that book. I'm writing that book. I'm projecting all of this onto her. Uh, so we only ever see Lila through the filter of Lanu, which complicates the narrative a lot. Um, but as to who is the intellectual, I mean, obviously both of them are, and I think that's another beautiful thing about the stories is that, you know, there's not one, you know, women are told that if they are intellectuals, they are the exception to the rule. Um, and so, you know, there's one, a, one way of being a female intellectual, and obviously this is not true at all. There's a million ways of being an intellectual human. Um, but the, the forms of intelligence on display between them is very interesting in that um, Leela is an incredible quick study. She's self-taught. She can learn anything immediately and master it. And she 
but you can see her insecurity when she's interacting with Lenu that she can't actually stick to anything. Um, and it begins as being denied opportunity, but then she also, she kind of doesn't see things through, and she's worried that she's always worried that she'll be left behind. And what motivates her to constantly keep studying is she mm-hmm. wants to keep up with Lenu. You know, she's the one who calls Lenu her brilliant friend. Right, right, obviously right. Obviously, Lenu is like, you're my brilliant friend. That's the whole story. Dana, Dana, Lenu is, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, and just Lenu is, you know, she's, um, her whole thing is that she's incredibly studious. She um, is an incredibly hard worker, and that she thinks herself incapable of an original thought. And so she idealizes Lilo's form of intelligence, which to her seems sui generis and um, iconoclastic, whereas hers is completely rote, which is not true, but this is how she presents her anxiety. Dana, and Megan, we've got to digress here before we're done to speak of the violence that saturates Elena Ferranti's Naples and the book chat back in the North End, too. The men are beating the women. The women are beating the kids. The women are beating each other. Mm-hmm. In the novel, Lila comes back from her honeymoon horribly smashed up by her husband, in the words of the novel. No one, not even her mother, who was silent during the entire visit, seemed to notice her swollen black eye the cut on her lower lip, the bruises on her arms. I took off her glasses, unwound her scarf. The skin around her eye was yellowish in color, and her lower lip was a purple stain with fiery red stripes. Besides, there was no one in the neighborhood, especially of the female sex, who did not think that she had needed a good thrashing for a long time. Mm -hmm. Leela's young husband, Stefano, explained to friend Lenu later, that of course his wife could never know how much he loved her unless he had smashed her to a pulp on their wedding night. And the neighborhood seemed to see it that, that way too. What, what have we learned in all of this, Megan? Well, um, yeah, there's, I mean, from the beginning, from, from the, you know, the first, um, the beginning of the, of the first book, we see, um, you know, Leela somehow, uh, and this neighborhood is already so violent and Leela seems to, seems to attract it. Um, you know, her, there's a point at which her father, you know, literally throws her out a window mm. and she breaks her arm. Um, and so part of it is, you know, we, we sense that this is sort of, you know, the way women are treated in, in this neighborhood and at this time. Uh, but there, but it's, um, it is very pointedly uh, something about Leela as well that I think the author is, is, uh, is showing that she, she sort of summons these, these sort of passions. Um, and Papa never spoke of it again. Um, no. Of the broken arm, I mean. No, exactly. Exactly. But, if, you know, and of course, Leela is, is sort of dehumanized in other ways as well, not just uh, through physical physical violence. Dana Tordorici, what do we make of all that mayhem? I think that what you make of it is that, the, you know, this is the violence of a poor neighborhood and the chain of violence you know, spills downward. So you have these men who are being, you know, treated poorly in their jobs or they're getting swindled Mm. by the loan sharks and then they're emasculated and belittled and so they go home and they beat their wives who then yell at their kids and it's a chain of violence that, you know, kind of circle or, you know, it's a circle of violence that reproduces itself. Um, but it's all about the chain of power bearing down on, um, on the family. A chain of wrongs that generated wrongs, Lena writes. 
in all this violence. And I think that, you know, the thing that Lila says is, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything like it doesn't make sense. That's violence does not make sense. This um, expression of frustration and thwarted power and aggression um, and it's not intelligent. And frequently the neighborhood, the violence of the neighborhood is conflated with, or associated with these images of kind of like rotting liquids or like feeded, you know, just this kind of gross sewage. Um, and it's only after being elevated out of the violence and the kind of disgusting rot of the neighborhood that you can get anywhere in your life. Who has defended their borders? preserve their integrity by the time this incredible story sort of comes to an end. And don't spoil it for anybody, but I mean, there are victories here. Are there not, Megan? Well, uh, certainly. I mean, the, you know, um, I mean, you know, in a way you could read the book as, as being uh, the thing then that, that Lenu herself has written, and that is the ultimate victory. Um, um, yeah. And then there's the, you know, sort of the dis- disappearance of, of Leela. Um you know who who really does not does not escape. I mean, you know the the question of escape is is an interesting one in the book because uh, Lenu does have to come come back come home to that neighborhood after she's escaped escaped it and and the idea that she can move up through social class uh, only to come back home is is sort of poignant and powerful. Dana, last quick word on who won, who survives, who's standing at the end. Quickly. Oh, everybody. <laughs> the, the the readers are very ready for volume five speaking for just one of them <laughs> thank you Megan O'Grady and Dana Totorici and to Nilanjana Roy and Ann Goldstein thanks also to the expressive readers at I Am Books in the north end of Boston I'll be there tomorrow and to Amy McDonald's book club in Cambridge Our social media team has set pieces of this show to music and images from Ferrante's Naples. For that and more, please check our website, radioopensource.org. Our show this week is produced by Max Larkin, Connor Gillies, Zach Goldhammer, Abby Duker, and Philip Gara. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our maestra. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.